5: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum. The number of unaccompanied children crossing the U.S.'s southern border has increased dramatically in recent weeks, overwhelming immigration authorities, as well as organizations that house and care for them. The situation is a test for President Joe Biden, who promised a humane response to immigration compared to the Trump administration. Meantime, Republicans are seizing on the situation to attack Biden's policies. We look at how things are playing out politically and how unaccompanied minors are being treated at the U.S. border. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said this week that the U.S. is on track to see the highest number of people coming to the southern border in 20 years, and among them, unaccompanied children, mostly teens, some as young as six and seven. Texas' southern border has been seeing the most activity lately, and joining me now is Dallas Morning News reporter Diane Solis. Welcome to Forum.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
5: Dallas is where FEMA is converting the Dallas Convention Center into a temporary shelter for thousands of teenage boys, as I understand it, boys seeking asylum. Have the children started arriving yet?
3: Yes, the children arrived last night at around 10 p.m., 200 teenage boys. And what can you
5: tell us about this facility?
3: The Dallas Convention Center is downtown, and it is a sprawling facility, and uh, it's uh, been revamped recently, and uh, it's uh, a little bit flashier looking than than before, and FEMA has leased only a portion of it, and that's where the children will be housed. The portion that they are leasing is very big, so it should be easy to do social distancing.
5: My understanding is that the center is expected to eventually house as many as 3,000 boys. Is that right?
3: That's right. Quite a number.
5: So why is this convention center needed? What has been happening?
3: The U.S. government is required to take in unaccompanied migrant minors, those under 18, by law and They weren't doing that during the Trump years and there was a lawsuit and that forced them to begin accepting them again during the pandemic. During the pandemic, the Trump administration invoked something known as Title 42, which allowed the Border Patrol to expel people quickly across the border uh, using a public health order. And that included the children. Then there was some litigation and the children were allowed to come in as long as they were unaccompanied again. And so that's why we're seeing children again coming in and they had been building up at the border. And some of the children are new arrivals mm. and they're being let in and in February there were more than 9,000 unaccompanied migrant minors. And so border facilities in
5: South Texas are overwhelmed. And so that's why this center is basically supposed to relieve some of that?
3: Exactly. Exactly. And, in, and there's also buildup of, of um, immigrant minors in uh, Arizona as well. So why why
5: Arizona, but also Texas in particular, are seeing so many unaccompanied children? I know that generally there have been a lot of people at the border, adults included. But in particular, it seems like Texas is seeing a lot of the activity related with unaccompanied children. Do you have a sense as to why?
3: Yes. Uh, in general, Texas and the Rio Grande Valley in specifically sees more of a flow of migrants. And that's because if you look at a map, it's the shortest route to the U.S. It's also the dangerous route. And uh, and, and because of that, it's believed that Im- immigrants use coyotes quite a bit. Coyotes are, is the colloquial term for a human smuggler.
5: You've reported that Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott went to Dallas on Wednesday Why? What did he want to say?
3: He gave two messages. One was that the Biden administration, he alleged, was mishandling this new spike in migration and was unprepared. And secondly, that he wanted to make sure that there was no human trafficking going on. Human trafficking is a very different legal charge from... human smuggling. It's a more serious charge. And the irony is that those children arrived to to, uh, Texas precisely because of an anti-trafficking law that's been on the books for several years. And that says migrant children traveling solo should have special protections and and should be handled uh, carefully and placed into shelters that are licensed, and they are in the custody of Health and Human Services, a different department than than uh, the Department of Homeland Security.
5: So then are you saying that you don't believe that, that human trafficking or that these children are being subject to human trafficking to the extent that, that the governor is suggesting, or...?
3: I think human trafficking has gone on in the past, and we know of cases, uh, but I don't know of any specific cases involving these children yet. Mm-hmm. It, it could rise to to that level of severity. Um, uh, there are, of course, cartels uh, in the uh, along the Gulf Coast of Mexico. And that's the route that many of these children have have taken. And many adult migrants take that route as well.
5: Again, we're talking with Diane Solis, immigration and social justice reporter for the Dallas Morning News. And we're talking about the influx of unaccompanied children at the southern border and focusing on Texas at the moment. What are Democrats saying about the governor's call and the governor's visit to the to the Dallas facility?
3: They too have two messages. One is welcome to the children. And secondly, they, they allege that Governor Abbott, a Republican, is trying to deflect the limelight and the criticism over his handling of the Texas freeze and the powder, power outages here. And, and the fact that many people actually died.
5: And so they're saying that he's focusing on this because he's sensing a political opportunity just so that I understand a little bit better. uh, Governor Abbott suggested that president Biden is enticing children to make the trek. He specifically used the word enticing in your reporting. Do you think that that's fair?
3: I wish that he had detailed that more and, uh, and he didn't. And um, if he meant that there was poor communications, then he should have said so. And there are others that have made that point. That when the Biden administration has said that uh, the, bo- the that uh, now is not the time to come, that that implied that perhaps later on there will be a time to come, and. You know, that that is something that even uh, uh, nonprofits have said, you know, that 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 the communication could have been clearer on that point.
5: And to what extent? Yes. Sorry. Go ahead, Diane. Uh,
3: We are seeing uh, a greater immigration now because of the pandemic hitting so many other countries much harder than it has hit the U.S.,
5: Yes. And, and to what extent do you think sort of this mixed messaging from the Biden administration that it's kids arriving with families, but then they're crossing the border, you know, they're crossing bo- the border alone as opposed to making the journey huge alone?
3: Factors in pulling people north. And we should be aware of that as well.
5: Yes. Uh, and, and, do you know to what extent um the kids Hi, diane, are Diane. how
4: are you
5: fine is that <laughs> so cindy carcamo the
4: video, then? this is not we're not
5: i believe cindy carcamo is joining us immigration reporter for the la times but diane i just wanted to repeat my question to you do you know to what extent kids are arriving with families and then crossing alone or they're making the journey alone Diane, can you hear me okay?
3: I, I can now. I'm sorry. Oh, what I was, was wondering,
5: question? to what extent are kids arriving with families uh, or cr- and then crossing alone? Or are they making the journey alone, given the kind of policies that Biden has put in place?
3: That's an excellent question. And... I know from reporting in the migrant camp in Matamoros, across from Brownsville, that there were mothers and and fathers who were sending their children alone, thinking that they would have a better chance of getting across and being accepted into the U.S. And And what's happening, I'm not so sure.
5: I see. Um, Well, Diane Solis, I want to thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Diane Solis, immigration and social justice reporter, giving us a sense of the picture in Dallas, a reporter for Dallas Morning News. Joining us now is Cindy Carcamo, immigration reporter for the L.A. Times. Cindy Carcamo, welcome to Forum.
4: Hi, thank you. Sorry about the earlier interruption.
5: Oh, no, that's OK. We were just getting our audio systems figured out there a little bit. But I was just talking with um, Diane Solis about the situation in Texas, and you have reported that basically President Biden is facing a potential threat here politically over the situation at the border and that even California's Kevin McCarthy made a point of traveling to Texas' southern border near El Paso to call it a border crisis. First, right.
4: can you can you tell us, is it a crisis? <laughs> well, I, I guess it depends on how you view things, right? I mean, uh, I, 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 what, I w- what I would disagree with is what um, some on uh at the in the GOP have described as um the border being overrun um and things of that sort making it seem that uh the border is out of the U.S. you know the southern border is out of control it Really, it's not. I mean, if you, it is a crisis in the sense that it's a humanitarian crisis. I mean, obviously, these are children. They're vulnerable. What they're going through um, and being detained or being sheltered is um, very traumatic for children, especially very young children. But I would say that the numbers are small um, overall. Compared to what we've seen in the past, right? So yes, the the, the numbers of unaccompanied children are high, and they're um, Trump era level high, in um, uh, the 2019. But overall, I mean, you know, we're we're talking about the 19, um, you know, the ni- mid 1980s and um, 2000, when we had record numbers of apprehension, hmm. 1.6 million apprehensions. Well, thanks
5: for putting that in context for us. We'll have more after the break. This is Forum.
2: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
5: We're talking about a rise in the number of unaccompanied minors entering U.S. custody along the southern border and how it has strained the government's capacity to process them, creating significant challenges for the Biden administration. Joining us now is Cindy Carcamo, immigration reporter for the L.A. Times, and I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have about what unaccompanied children at the U.S. border are facing? What uh, questions do you or comments would you like to make about Biden's handling of the situation? Give us a call, 866 733 6786. Again, 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Just before the breaks into you, we're talking about uh, how the numbers overall, while high at the moment, are ne- not necessarily the highest. And of course, Under Trump's presidency as well, we saw some of the largest migration numbers, you know, since, say, the mid 2000s at the southern border. So it sounds like in some ways, regardless of policy, there are large numbers of people wanting to come to the U.S.,
4: Right. There is. Um, there is, uh, you know, large numbers of people wanting to come to the U.S. There's definitely that, you know, uh, uh, it's a different kind of migration, though, than we've seen in the past. You know, uh, in the 90s and 80s, a lot of it was single young men uh, from Mexico who were um, it was more of a pull factor that were lured in by by jobs uh, and, 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 and pulled pushed by the economic factors in, in their, in their um, hometowns and their, and their countries of origin. But now what we're seeing is different. You know, uh, the, the people who are coming, it's more of a push factor where you have um, people who are dealing with really violent situations in their countries of origin um, primarily in Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And um, you know, a lot of these people have a good portion of them have asked or want asylum and they think they qualify for asylum. And, and for, for a while there, they they were doing it the right way. They were going to ports of entry, um, asking for asylum, uh, which is well within, um, international and United States law. Um, but, um, You know, obviously during the Trump administration, that all changed. He implemented a lot of policies that made it virtually impossible for um, people to uh, be granted or to even have a shot. Uh, at asylum, and and I think people forget that right now we have Title Forty Two. So basically, it, the, the the border is is closed to most people. Um, you know, Title Forty Two is like a rarely used 1944 Public Health Authority that gives administration allows them to basically expel people, uh, without any kind of due process, um, allow them to expel them out of the U S so they don't even have a shot to ask for asylum, The, the, you know, with unaccompanied children, title 42 has been lifted, but I think people forget that, um, This is something that has stopped a lot of people from coming to the U.S.
5: Hmm. I should note that the ACLU has filed a suit challenging Title 42. I believe that was last month. Um, And I'm not exactly sure where that litigation is or where it is in process, but my understanding is They are trying to decide whether or not to press a judge to halt those expulsions that you're talking about under Title 42. But as you say, children are an exception here. And uh, I was asking Diane Solis this question that Holly is writing in with. Holly writes, the Texas entry route might be the shortest and one that Coyotes use the most to bring people in. But why are the kids unaccompanied? Do parents send the kids to have a better life and think that Coyotes will help protect the kids on the way here? Please explain why they're coming without adult family members. Do you also have
4: insights into this, Cindy Carcomo? Yes, um, you know I think there is a misconception that unaccompanied children are just making the journey by themselves, and obviously that's not the case. Um, you know, obviously I, most times they are accompanied by a family member, someone who's kind of like a de, a de facto parent. Um, you know, we are seeing cases where people are coming with uncles or aunts who helped raise them uh, after their mother or father, um, you know, left the U- left to come to the U.S., left them behind. I mean, I'm just talking some of the cases. And, and, um, and, you know, these these family members are, are really parents for all purposes, for most purposes for these kids. I mean, they're seen as a person that's protecting them. When they come to the U.S., though, like I just heard about a case where an uncle and a little boy came to the U.S. and they were asking for asylum. But because the uncle is not a biological parent, the U.S. separated that boy from his uncle. Um, And simply because that that uncle is not a biological parent, the mother lives in the United States. And so in in, in a sense, the US government is creating unaccompanied minors. So that's that's adding to the problem. So you have that, you have children who are coming with like a family member who they see as a parent, um, who raised them. And then you also have you know, the desperation of parents who are waiting in Mexico, who have been waiting for quite some time, who see this as a, the only way to protect their child Um and so, what they do is they hire a smuggler to be able to take them across. I can't imagine. I mean, I'm I'm a mother of a six year old. I can't imagine the desperation of trusting my child to a smuggler. I would have to be in very dire straits to be able, to, you know, to, to do something like that. Um, so, I think you have a combination of different things happening along the southern border, and um, I think a problem is one of the problems is that the government does not consider some, you know, these family members, um, you know, guardians. And in a sense, they'd separate them and make an unaccompanied. Basically, it's like, uh, it's a problem because these children really aren't unaccompanied, you know, but they become unaccompanied once they're separated.
5: Well, if you... Hear the Biden administration discuss some of the challenges that they're facing. They will say that it's because the Trump administration has left them with a dismantled and very unworkable system. Do you think that that's true? Like a gutted system, Cindy Carcomo. Sorry, Cindy, can you hear me? Let's see how, if we can sort that out. In the meantime, uh, let me see if I can get a call from Ron in Venetia. Hi, Ron.
6: Hi, uh, good morning. I was just calling to say that uh, I'm really disappointed in the approach that uh, our people, the United States, has taken towards these immigration situations. I don't see these people coming from around the world who want to be here in this country as a crisis I see it as an opportunity—an opportunity to grow our economy, to opportunity to grow our uh, brain power, uh, an opportunity for all people to enjoy the freedoms and liberties that this country uh, uh, speaks of, uh, aspires to. I'm disappointed that uh, we don't see how these uh, our Christian ethic is being uh, distorted and 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 and, and uglified. Uh, we uh, who call ourselves Christians, uh, this, this ethic that Jesus taught is not being practiced anymore. We care only for ourselves and not for, not for those who cannot help themselves. You see no place in the world that other people are fleeing to. They, tr- they come across oceans to get to this country because there's something about this country that appeals to people's idea of what it means to be a free person, what it means to have opportunity. And we've thrown it all down the drain. It's well, time. Sorry.
5: Yeah, no, thank you, Ron. I will let your, your comment stand. And uh, let me go to caller William in Belvedere. Hi, William.
0: <clears throat> yes, thank you very much. Uh, I This is like... Uh, Uh, trying to put out a fire while uh, someone's throwing gasoline on it. Uh, What's been completely overlooked is the role of the United States in intervening in the Central American countries to keep in power or bring to power dictatorships that make the situation miserable for the people. For instance, if you want to form a union at any of these factories where they're earning four cents an hour or whatever, uh, you get your head blown off. So so long as those circumstances persist, and they're often perpetuated by uh, United States firms that want cheap labor down there to make our shirts so that we can buy a shirt for $12, uh, you're going to go on having the problem. And my prediction is, remember you heard it here first, that the immigration situation is going to break the back of the Biden administration.
5: Well, let me get Cindy Carcamo's reaction to a couple of things you're saying. One is the U.S.'s role in creating some of the situations that push people to migrate, Cindy Carcamo. And then I can have you comment also just on William's prediction in terms of the political vulnerability this creates for the president.
4: Right. Well, yes. I mean, the U.S. is notorious for knowing, for for, um, intervening in other um, countries. I mean, you saw this in the 1980s in El Salvador, also, um, you know, in other places in Central America, in regards to, uh, you know, getting involved in the civil wars. Reagan did, for instance, uh, funding um, and trying to get rid of the... the, um, you know, socialist presence in Central America, what that created was an exodus of people. I mean, you destabilize a country, people are going to leave. So, I mean, that's what happened. People came here um, to the United States during the 80s, um, during those civil wars in Central America. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of seeing it now, too, because what, what that did was, I mean, it's long and complicated, but what that did was, you know, it also created, um, you know, there were gangs that were formed here in Los Angeles, specifically, uh, MS-13. It's, it's an L.A. gang. A, a lot of it, uh, Salvadoran, um, you know, people were born in the U.S., um, but uh, joined these gangs uh, formed these gangs and um, in the 90s in the late 90s when we started deporting a lot of these people to Central America it only made the situation worse and you be- these these local LA street gangs became international um, criminal organizations um, which is one of the reasons why we have, this instability now in Central America, where you have neighborhoods that are dominated by gangs, and people flee that. They're fleeing extortion. They're fleeing kidnappings. Um, you know, obviously not everyone, but a good portion of them are. And this is something that's been studied by different um, international organizations looking at the push factors. So this, right. this, this, this what we're seeing now is not something that's happening in a vacuum. It comes it's a long time coming and there's history behind it and there is US intervention behind that.
5: And Republicans are really sensing a political opportunity here because border security right. is such a powerful motivator among the base. So do you think William's right that that this is a real path to to twenty twenty two, for example. <laughs>
4: Right. Yeah, I think I think he does have a point. Um, you know, Republicans are seizing the moment. I mean, they're you know, you they're they're trying to, um, you know, take advantage of the optics right now at the border. And now I'm not saying that it's an ideal situation. Far from it. I mean, you have children who um, are coming in, are, are you know, are here who are in, in situations that they should not be in. The numbers are rising. Yes. But it is not the crisis that they're making it out to be. Um, you know, you, 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 the border is not being overrun. Most people are not allowed to come in. Um, you know, so I, I, I just think it's interesting because in 2019, when you had 977,000 apprehensions under the Trump era, under the most draconian Um, immigration restrictionist area where they did everything they could, all the rhetoric, the enforcement, the policies, everything, you still had high numbers Mm. of people being apprehended at the border. So I don't understand the whole idea of deterrence, you know, that they think that deterrence is key of trying to send a message to Central America. We've seen that it doesn't really work all that well.
5: And again, Cindy Carcamo is immigration reporter for the LA Times. Neha Desai is with us, Director of Immigration at the National Center for Youth Law. Thanks so much for joining us, Neha Desai.
7: Thanks so much for having me.
5: I understand that you've been able to visit and interview the children right now um, who are at various sites, especially in Texas. Can you tell us where you were and can you tell us how the children are doing?
7: Sure. So last week, my colleague, Lisha Welsh, and I um, conducted Flores site visits at the Donna Processing Center and Carrizo Springs, the Influx facility in Texas, um, and we spent our time there interviewing children. Um, what we heard directly from the children at Donna in particular reflected what we know, which is that the facility is dramatically overcrowded and that children are spending far longer there than they should. Um, We spoke with children that were scared and confused. They had no idea why they were there, where they'd be going next. Um, Some of them hadn't had contact with family, hadn't had an opportunity to even be outside, um, and were unable to be with their siblings. Um, I do want to say, though, that the White House has, has fully acknowledged all of this and has said unequivocally that this is not appropriate. And from what we've seen so far, both the White House and the respective agencies are doing everything they can to swiftly address these conditions.
5: So you believe the Biden administration is doing enough to try to follow the law that we were discussing earlier, which requires within 72 hours for Customs and Border Protection to move unaccompanied children to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, a, a shelter, more of a, a shelter that can handle having children there long-term and allow them to have more activity and so on?
7: There is no doubt in my mind that the Biden administration is committed to humanely addressing the humanitarian situation that we're now facing. I know that the agencies and the White House have been working tirelessly to address this. Um, and in fact, they have moved forward on a number of recommendations that we and other advocates have been really um, encouraging for many months. And, and these include joint processing centers at the border, making it easier for sponsors to come forward and not have fear of enforcement actions, um, expediting reunification, intensive case management, and other specific actions to expedite releases. So I do believe that they are, are taking a number of steps.
5: And remind us how this system is supposed to work, just so that we can better put in context, for example, the Dallas Convention Center right now and why that is being opened up.
7: Yeah, absolutely. So just to clarify who we're talking about, unaccompanied children are children who are arriving at the border without parents or legal guardians, and they're seeking protection. And as was already mentioned, the government is legally obligated to ensure that these children are safely, humanely treated and released to sponsors as quickly as possible. So there's a three-step process that is supposed to occur. Now, first, children are picked up by border agents or presented at a port of, uh, port of entry, At at which point they're detained by Customs and Border Protection, CBP. From there, they're supposed to be transferred within 72 hours to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Once they're in the Office of Refugee Resettlement, they're supposed to be housed in facilities that are licensed, state licensed by child welfare authorities, and then they are held there until they can be released to sponsors, who are typically family members here in the United States. And the majority of unaccompanied children arrive with a sponsor to whom they can be released, often um, even a mother or father, but if not that, then an aunt, uncle, cousin, etc. There there are many different um, situations to which children are released, but typically family.
5: So then right now the issue is that there aren't enough state licensed shelter spaces in part because of COVID-19 restrictions that require social distancing and smaller capacities?
7: That's a that's absolutely a significant piece of it. So there's really two parts of it. There is a, a decrease in the licensed bed space because of COVID nineteen related restrictions, however, some of those are being reevaluated in order to address the the current situation. So some of those bed spaces are opening up. Um, so simultaneously having a reduced capacity and an increased number of children entering has led us to the moment that we're in right now. Um, but just to say, and I know this was mentioned previously, you know we are not seeing unprecedented numbers. Um, this is really a situation that the country has seen before, certainly not during a pandemic, but this is a challenge that I think we can meet.
5: Again, we're talking with Neha Desai, Director of Immigration at the National Center for Youth Law and co-counsel for Flores and Flores versus Reno. Also, Cindy Carcamos with us, Immigration Reporter for the LA Times. If you have questions about what unaccompanied children at the U.S. border are facing or want to comment on how Biden is handling the situation, call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Hi,
1: Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome
5: back to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're talking about the influx of unaccompanied children at the southern border with Sidi Arkamo, immigration reporter for the L.A. Times, and Neha Desai, director of immigration at the National Center for Youth Law. You, our listeners, are with us as well. And uh, I want to invite you to join the conversation at 866-733-6786 with your questions and comments. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.com. Dot org, And Cindy Carcomo, in terms of trying to come up with additional shelter spaces, there are sites in California that are being considered, correct?
4: There are. Um, there are sites in California that are being considered. One thing that I do want to kind of mention, however, is... That for some reason, um, you know, one of the complications with housing these children um, during the COVID era, obviously, is because they can't have as many people, as many children in one space. Right. Um, but in, in addition to that, you know, so these are children that, be, that are being sent to, to facilities all over the country. Each facility has their own um you know, way of doing things in regards, based on the local guidelines when it comes to, um, you know, distancing and, and how they're dealing with COVID. And in addition to that, they also have the federal guidelines on how they're do, dealing with COVID. I know that the administration is trying to, um, you know, rejigger some of that. Um, but you, we're also seeing very strange things. And, and one thing that I'm still trying to get the, the, to the bottom of is that you're having children having to quarantine by themselves in, in, in a room by themselves for 14 days. Uh, without interaction from other children or anyone else, really. I mean, obviously they're fed, but, um, I mean, that that leads to a lot of questions as to, the mental health of these children. Um, you know, can you imagine a five-year-old by themselves in, in, in a facility in one room just giving crayons and paper and nothing else and no other human contact except for once in a while because they have to quarantine? Um, and so so that leads to a lot of questions. Obviously, we have these public, you know, we have to think about public safety, but also the mental health of this, these children and the trauma that they go through is, is something that we, we should be talking about and, and should be considered... Um, um, with
5: this administration, well, Anthony writes three thousand boys to be held in the Dallas Convention Center for how long? Under what conditions can they see the sun? Can they get exercise? What kind of diet do they have? How does this setting differ from a maximum security prison? Neha Desai, so if if there's the border patrol facilities, right, where you can only have kids for seventy two hours, and then you send them to licensed shelters uh, that are um, overseen by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, Where does a site like the Dallas Convention Center fit into that?
7: Jen, and I, I think it's a little too early to answer some of the questions that were asked in terms of the specific conditions, so we, we will see how that all plays out. Um, this is an unlicensed facility, so it won't be required to meet the state standards that the majority of facilities within the ORR network have to meet, and that that involves everything from recreation and education and mental health services and medical services, et cetera. Um, I, My understanding is that the government is going to try and build in as many of the protections as possible, but I I do think that we're going to be seeing um, substantial differences between the type of licensed facility that typically children are going into versus something like the convention center. And the other thing I'll just mention, um, and really I say this with their perspective of having visited children as a children's rights attorney for the past 15 years in a variety of different settings, whether that's foster homes, juvenile detention centers, immigration detention facilities, you know, it's just, it's simply unnatural to have that enormous of a number of children all warehoused together in one place. Um, Now, obviously, we're in a moment in time. And so this is just an effort to address this particular situation. And I think the agencies in White House recognize that it's far from ideal. Um, But even in the best-run facility. When you have that many children in one place, there's really no way to meet their individualized needs. Mm.
5: Well, just a quote from Diane Solis, who joined us at the top of the hour, describing the Dallas facility as a, quote, temporary facility at the convention center that will provide opportunities for exercise and socialization for children who have already faced incredible trauma. Let me go to Sandy in San Francisco. Hi, Sandy.
4: Hi, good morning. First of all, thank you to all of you who are advocating tirelessly on behalf of these kids. It's really just heartbreaking, Uh, unbelievable. My question is, I know someone mentioned like an uncle might be separated from a child when they get to the border. How, How, what kind of identification or notes or Are the parents providing to the kids if they do get separated so that we know who their guardians are in this country or who the people are that we can match them up with safely? Like, uh, do they have anything that the people leave with the child so that we know who to contact
5: Sandy, thanks. Cindy Carcamo, do you have any insights into how well the children are being tracked or in terms of making sure that they are going safely to people that they're supposed to go to?
4: Right. Well, ORR, um, you know, uh, does um, particularly rigorous. Um, you know vetting of um, of the people that they're supposed to go to when it comes to sponsors, right? So if it's a parent, um, I think for a while there, ORR maybe was not doing the vetting that they should. And this is years ago, and there was this big scandal where um, some of the children were being trafficked to like a potato farm, um, and a horrible situation. Um, but that was not the norm. So now what you have is ORR has kind of swung the pendulum has swung, and now you have or are putting even parents through really rigorous um, vetting where I have this woman that I'm speaking with um, who lives in New Mexico, who um, whose child came with the uncle, right, the, the, the five-year-old boy. And what happened was the, the mother, um, you know, they're asking for fingerprints from the mom, and, and the mom just wants her child, and it's been a month. They've been waiting, and 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 the fingerprints are actually not mandatory by ORR if it's of a biological parent. Um, so there's delay after delay after delay. And, um, yes, the situation is tough because of COVID, um, but, um, you know, this poor mother is separated from her boy, and she's doing all that she can, but, um, you know, it's, and then she's like, I'll give my fingerprints, that's fine, I'll do whatever, but the delays are just horrific, mm. and um, it's heartbreaking to hear her talk about that.
5: Well, Neha Desai, what do you think of that in terms of as an advocate for youth in terms of some of the things that they're making this mother that Cindy's describing jump through? Because we did have this earlier question about how big a problem or how many of these children are subject to human trafficking?
7: Yes, these are all really good questions and ones that we've been thinking hard about for many years. Um, I will say that, you know, with this current situation, we have a lot of opportunity for reform. And some of the issues that have been brought to the table today are things that we've seen for many years and believe that there are great opportunities to truly reform the system. So for example, let's stick with parents here. So right now, there is a presumption against releasing a child until proven, you know, a valid potential sponsor. Um, from my perspective, if you have a mother or a father and there's no, there's nothing in question that this really is the mother or father, um, the presumption should be in favor of releasing extremely quickly to that parent, um, unless there has been any sort of red flag, orange flag raised of of a concern, but there's no reason, unlike in the child welfare system, when a child has been removed from their home due to an allegation of abuse and neglect, these are not kids that are apart from their parents because of any sort of allegation. So there should really be um, incredibly minimal hurdles that parents have to jump over before having their children released to them. So I do hope that that is an outcome of what we're seeing right now, which is a move towards more expeditiously releasing, particularly what are called Category 1 to Category 1 sponsors. So that's immediate parents. Um, in terms of the questions around traffing, trafficking, I, I do think it's important to put this in context. Um, it, it is true that there are traffickers that have in the past Try to have children released to them, but it is an incredibly rare situation. And it's something that we've paid very close attention to over the years. And um, the egg farm situation was mentioned previously. That was really an aberration. And I think that um, developing policy, all with an eye towards a very exceptional situation. Um, and then having some unintended consequences of prolonged custody for the majority of kids is, is really problematic. And so I hope that we can kind of move that pendulum back to the middle and, and make sure that we're, you know, taking, of course, all of the necessary precautions, but not doing so in a way that ends up um, really having some unintended negative implications for the majority of children in custody.
5: Well, Britt asks, in the child welfare system in California, heightened licensing rules have meant that there are fewer and fewer congregate care placements for children. Are these the same licensing rules that apply for unaccompanied minors, and is that part of the reason that there are limited beds? Neha Desai.
7: Yes, I, I just want to make sure I understand the question. So yes, I mean, the, it is the same set of child welfare licensing standards that facilities in California um, have to go through. I, I, I don't think there is a link between that licensing process um, and our, the current reduced capacity or uh, the current status of the capacity. Um, there are... The state system is in a very different place than the federal system is in terms of the move away from congregate care facilities towards very small, ideally, um, foster care settings in the community. And I do believe that this administration has an intention of moving away from large mm-hmm. congregate care facilities where kids in federal immigration custody are placed and moving towards these smaller foster homes. Um, but that is a longer term process. And I believe it is underway. And it is certainly something that we strongly support.
5: Well, Cindy Carcamo, just on a California note, of course, the Office of Refugee Resettlement will be under Health and Human Services, which would be run by Javier Becerra, of course. And uh, he is expected to be confirmed fairly soon. What do you think his approach will be?
4: What his approach will be. Oh yeah. Can you hear me?
5: I can hear you now.
4: Okay. 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 Sorry. Um, yeah, I really can't say, I really don't know what his approach will be. Um, what, what I can say is, and I, I think it's worth noting and noting one thing that I didn't get into in the story that I wrote the Q&A is that, the the what you know the government has known Department of Homeland Security has known that the demographics of people coming uh, to the U.S. Mexico border has been shifting for quite some time. I mean, 2014 we saw a huge number of you know unaccompanied children coming to the border. Um, it's you know it's no longer you know Mexican uh, young men coming, and, and and what is surprising to me or maybe not surprising I guess. Is that the government has known since 2014 that the, the, the demographic has changed? So why has nothing been done, and or not much been done, um, to be able to accommodate these children if they do mm. come, or these young families, right? Yes. Instead, the, the the places where they're being housed initially are still built, are still we're still created for young men not children, not young families. And so that's something I think we should is worth noting um, that for years, the government has known this.
5: It is an interesting note. And let me just remind listeners, we're talking about the influx of unaccompanied children at the Southern border. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. I guess that is sort of part of my question here, Neha Desai, is what it feels like right now is overall, the Trump administration is treating the kinds of situation that we're seeing where, you know, uh, Customs and Border Protection facilities are, are overwhelmed and so on, is more of a capacity issue. And what Cindy, I think, is raising is the question of whether or not that is the case, right? And that the solution and the Biden plan, w- with which is really focused on creating more capacity in the system to shelter children, is the solution um, or something more really needs to be done because so much really hasn't been done in terms of major policy shifts in the way we've handled immigration.
7: Yeah. So we're looking at a short-term humanitarian situation and a longer-term situation that requires really dramatic reform, kind of from A to Z, from the moment that children are entering and are currently being placed in facilities that are completely inappropriate for any humans, let alone children, all the way through the process of being released. So I absolutely think there are pretty significant changes that need to be made At at every stage of the process, from CBP, from the ORR facilities, the types of facilities that are used, and the sponsor vetting process. Um, so and, and these are things that we have put a lot of thought into over mm-hmm. the years. Um, I know that Secretary Mayorkas has certainly acknowledged how inappropriate any CBP facility is for any child. Um, I'm not sure what steps are going to be taken to completely eliminate the use of those. I think my understanding is the priority is really minimizing the amount of time that kids are in those facilities. And then what my organization and, and our um, partners, our co council in um one of the cases that we have filed lucas um, lucas rb azar is really looking one of the issues that we focused on is the sponsor sponsor unification process because there are so many ways in which um, we should be speeding up the process by which children are being released and if they and and really building in due process protection so that when children aren't being released quickly, um, there is some accountability that the government has. So again, at every stage, whether it's minimizing, if not eliminating the time they're in CBP, um, ensuring that when when they're in the custody of the office of refugee resettlement, they are in small licensed facilities that are community-based, ideally foster care settings. And then they are being, they're going through the sponsor reunification process as, absolutely quickly as is possible to do safely. Because again, I recognize that there are these concerns um, around trafficking. And so at, at every stage of that, you know, we certainly have a number Of recommendations and thoughts on on how to improve that. And I do hope that this situation that the country now faces serves as real momentum to move forward some of these larger um, reform efforts that have been necessary for many, many years.
5: Well, we have less than a minute left. And I do want to ask you, Neha Desai, you've expressed in the past concerns about how what's happening right now at the border is being understood by the general public and being portrayed as well. Tell us what you think we need to understand.
7: Thanks for asking. So quickly, I mean, the Biden administration is doing what is both legally and morally required. At this point, there has been a mischaracterization that he's opening the border when in fact the border remains overwhelmingly closed. There were 9,000 children turned away during the Trump years, unaccompanied children. And this administration is simply trying to follow the law and allow children who are legally entitled to seek protection to enter. Um, And also, I think there's a lot of confusion around the types of facilities that are being used and conflation amongst whether it is um, a custom and border protection versus an influx setting versus a licensed ORR setting, and each of those are, are very, very different environments, some of which are utterly inappropriate for children and some of which um, are are appropriate but need to be used for the shortest amount of time period.
5: Neha Desai, Director of Immigration at the National Center for Youth Law, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Also, I want to thank Cindy Carcamo, Immigration Reporter for LA Times. Appreciate having you here as well, Cindy Carcamo. Thank you for having me on. And I also want to thank our producer, Blanca Torres, for producing today's segment and our listeners for their questions, comments, and clear concerns for what is happening to these unaccompanied children. Before we close, we at Forum would like to express our condolences to the family of longtime KQED colleague, Penny Nelson, who passed away this morning. For over two decades, Penny guest-hosted Forum and the California Report, and reported stories of all kinds. KQED's chief content officer, Holly Kernan, shared this morning that Penny was adventurous and had a love of life that was infectious. This song, Anthem, by Leonard Cohen, was one of her favorites.
6: That's how the light gets in That's how the light gets in in.